We've created this system that's like a really super smart dermatologist. It's almost like your colleague or like a really good third year resident as this extension of you. Welcome to That's Derm Good. I'm Janelle Ball, and I'm excited to bring you thought-provoking conversations about biologics, specialty medications, treatments, and so much more. I'll be chatting with some amazing guests about access, affordability, and advocacy. You're really going to enjoy this show. Welcome to That's Derm Good. Today, my guest is Dr. Farah Kamangar. She is a board-certified dermatologist and the founder of Derm GPT. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Farah. I appreciate you being here. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And I love your podcast. I'm learning a lot from everything you do as well. So it's it's so great to be here. Thank you. I'm excited to jump in and talk to you about, oh my gosh, the AI thing. You have a podcast too, don't you? We do. And we would love to have you on if you ever. <laughs> I would love that. Yes. I was just listening yesterday, that, you know, so I was, I traveled too. And so I was like, I'm like, all right, I got to get my podcast playlist downloaded so I can make sure I've got stuff to listen to um, on the plane. But that was one of them. And uh, you've got several different episodes in there that I was like, oh, I got to hear all about this. So yeah, I can't wait to listen to them. But I'm excited to, to talk to you. And, you know, there's been so much buzz going on with AI. And, you know, this has just been so interesting to kind of learn about Derm GPT. And I don't know what it is. I haven't used chat GPT before, but I feel like there's all there's all kinds of different AI tools. I mean, even in Canva, I'm like getting like, uh, you know, different things to propose or whatever. And I see, you know, you can use AI to create some information. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is a lot. It's it's kind of overwhelming a little bit, but it's it's actually really cool. But AI is infused into almost everything now. But before we jump into that, I kind of want to talk to you about just your background and history and dermatology and what got you started in healthcare and what made you even decide to become a dermatologist? Absolutely. Those journeys are so fun to talk about, but we rarely take the time to review it. Like, how did we get here? So for myself, so I actually started in undergrad. I'll go way back. I'll go even further back in undergrad. I started in engineering, which is hence why I've done a lot of work in health tech as well. So I started in straight computer science, switched to biotech, and then decided to go to medical school. In medical school, I really wanted to do like the hardcore surgeries and, you know, as I was applying my fourth year, I was applying to ENT actually, completely different field. When I was on one of my ENT rotations, I met this woman, she walks in, this dermatologist, and she has this like flowy, curly hair, just looks different than any of the other like really burnt out, tired doctors. (laughs) She walks in, she was a Mohs surgeon. And she had a dual partnership professorship in the ENT department and dermatology because of the kind of head and neck cancer surgeries that she did. And mm-hmm. I think I, until then, for some reason, I hadn't really considered dermatology. And in medical school education, you don't get a lot of dermatology, mm. strangely enough. So it's sort of 
it's something that you, you think you know what it is, but it really is completely different. So you kind of think, oh, well, I just treat a little bit of acne and this and that. And when you get real exposure. So after her, I was like, I should switch my next rotation to dermatology and see what it's about. And I just loved it. I think I hadn't realized all of the, and I'm, I kind of like the geeky, nerdy side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it, like immunology. And I just, just seeing all the immunotherapies the dermatologists were using, the procedures they were doing. It's one of those fields that is just so molecularly advanced. Like the medications that are coming out are incredible, but then really hard to get to, which is why we need you. So I just, I fell in love with it. Ended up actually, because I was in fourth year already, decided, you know, why don't I just take like a research year and decide kind of, you know, if I want to do this and all, all that kind of stuff. Ended up going to UCSF with Dr. Koo at the Psoriasis Center And I was supposed to stay for like six months, figure things out and apply to dermatology. I stayed for like two years, just fell in love with the immunotherapies. This was a little bit back in the day. So we were doing a lot of the even super early trials on the biologics, Mm -hmm. immunotherapies, even like extract laser, photomedics extract laser. We were going to doing some of the earlier eczema trials. And it was just incredible, the science that was booming. And even since then, we know so much more about the T cells and Mm -hmm. all the different milieu of of different ways that you can basically change inflammation in the skin. Then we kind of learned later on that it's not just skin as we kind of always thought. And you have all the atherosclerosis cardiovascular risk. So dermatology has just become this really, really cool field. But I I won't go too far into that. And then went into dermatology residency and became a dermatologist. But this whole time, actually, even for medical school, I was always involved in health tech, just because I had that tech background. And I I just kind of love the combination. But back then, it was not cool. Like health tech was a very not cool thing to talk about. I would kind of bring up some of the projects with some of my attendings in med school residency. And they were just like, yeah, whatever, like tech, that has nothing to do with medicine, which is now kind of full circle. Now it has everything to do with, you know, with with medicine. So currently that was sort of the journey. Currently I am the department chair at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation. So we're, we're a big group. We have about 16 dermatologists in our group. We have MOs and dermatopathology and we do lots of immunotherapies, phototherapy, all the usual things. I I was also the chair of the San Francisco Derm Society. So through that, we got to really collaborate a lot with our colleagues at UCSF, Stanford, UC Davis, all the private practice docs. And Mm -hmm. I just get an idea of what everyone's doing in the Bay Area. And I do know the one common thing about all these different practices, the main pain point is practice management, prior authorizations, biologic, mm-hmm. just like the burden of just our prescriptions getting like yes. bigger and bigger and, and all that, which it's then kind of leads to AI and uh, Derm GPT. And we could have to talk about that a little bit more in detail, but the Derm GPT tool was really, I just thought we, we need to start having physicians start making some technology. Mm-hmm. Um, the other boards that I was always on, it was everything was driven by the business people and engineers who were very well-meaning, but they don't understand like our everyday pain points that like right. a biologic coordinator would understand because they're on the phone, you know, every day with insurance companies and things like that. And so we keep kind of getting these solutions, but they're not quite right. And they kind of add a little layer of work too. So that's the history of, of yeah. why I'm doing all the things I'm doing now. That is amazing. You know, when you think about it, dermatology, I feel like it's so connected, just interconnected with all the other specialties because things can present on the skin. And, you know, it's just really exciting to hear all the advances. And, you know, when I first started, I mean, this was 
Oh, I've been in Durham for about 15 years. So I got to see some of the changes and, you know, evolving from just using a light box, you know, to patients being able to come in and have an injection and then to going and just being able to do their own injections at home. And, you know, I think it's, it's really exciting to see how much it's evolved and what's available. But yes, like you said, I mean, there are so many barriers and between insurance barriers or just education and time spent trying to educate patients and helping with that compliance. And that's, it's huge. And that's, it's so hard when there's just so much going on and everybody's ready for a quick fix and trying to get things done as quickly as possible. But it sounds like you've got so many people around to collaborate and learn from. And that is, I think that is huge when growing as, as a physician and, and just treating so many patients. And I'm sure, you know, obviously there's never the same thing. You know, there's somebody that comes in with something that you probably haven't, haven't experienced very often. And how often does that actually happen to you? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's so true because we keep going to this dermatology conferences and we're like, oh, there can't possibly be, you know, new things. I was just at one a couple of months ago, but then there is like it's constantly changing. I think the Bay Area community of dermatologists is really unique. Of course, I'm biased because I'm here, but everyone here is just so incredible. Like we have some of the top leaders in some disease states. Yeah. literally down the street. So when we get together for these just kind of regional collaboration type meetings, they mm-hmm. are just incredible. Like your brain at the end of the week, is just like, well, like I just learned so much. And then you take it yeah. back to your practice. And on the Monday, you're like, okay, this, for example, you know, like you're saying someone might come in and you might've thought something differently of it on the Friday. And then you learn all these things from your colleagues, come back, treat it completely differently. So yeah, the right. collaboration piece is just incredible. Yeah, just another piece actually to tie back to the AI. It's real-time research and learn language models are real-time changing too. Not to necessarily replace anyone or anything like that, but it kind of becomes this really super advanced, smart other colleague of yours. If you don't have time to text someone or someone's not sitting next to you, or there are, we're lucky because there's 16 derms just right down the, you know, the hall from us, but some solo practitioners, they might not see another dermatologist for a while. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really great to have these like really advanced type of tools. Yeah. So let's jump in and talk about this artificial intelligence. I mean, you know, we know that. So what exactly is Derm GPT and what does GPT stand for? So I'm going to start a little more broadly. So AI is very broad and artificial intelligence. It's basically using machines of any kind to do something for you that mimics kind of what human beings can do. So within that, there are all sorts of different, there's language models, which is what DermGPT falls under. And then there are audio and video images, like all sorts of different things, which is why you're seeing it broadly over so many kind of platforms. So traditionally, before a year ago, before ChatGPT became available and was open, what you had access to were these really slow machine learning platforms that they would take a lot of hours, a lot of programming and a lot of money, like it would be hundreds of thousands of dollars to train a machine basically to do what you wanted it to do. And it was like very task specific. So I kind of, like the example I kind of used to compare it to is maybe with like t- children or toddlers kind of learning language. 
if they were to learn one thing at a time without being to, able to like infer to anything else, it would take forever to learn language, which there are some speech disorders that, that do that. But they're just picking up all sorts of things. They're relating it. So it's basically exponentially learning, which is why like a one and a half year old, two year old can start having conversations with you which is kind of crazy. So the traditional sort of machine learning was like this really slow thing. You would teach it to do one thing and it could kind of do that. Then mm -hmm. with the generative AI that we now have with like ChatGPT really revolutionized it. So what they did is they basically made a model that can teach itself. And they took the first GPT, GPT-3, they basically took like a quarter of the internet through that information at the AI model and mm -hmm. just said, what happens if you just kind of learn on your own do you get some sort of like legitimate answers of any kind? <laughs> and and like we, I think we all learned that it, it, it was doing pretty well. It was the there was a problem of the hallucinations, which are like type two errors. Where sometimes it would make up stuff, so that was a problem. But it's just because you threw at it this just very broad kind of knowledge. And then for ChatGPT four and the iterations that are coming out, they're just training it on more and more knowledge in, in their internet. So it's getting smarter and smarter. It might be getting a little too smart, which is kind of why you see the controversies of mm. kind of what's what's going on with it. But so the main difference with like a Durham GPT, I should say, which is also a learned language model, you're only as good as the data you get. So if you just put a bunch of general information in there, the output is going to be kind of random too. Even mm. though the process is actually pretty intelligent, it's coming out with good responses. It's only as good as the information you put in. So for right. Durham GPT specifically, we've put in only publications and Durham certified information. So we have over 3,000 publications and writings from the field. So it's, it's something that a dermatologist would approve of. It's not even like a generic collection of Durham journals or anything. Like it's been pre-reviewed as, yes, this is something we use in clinic. These are our guidelines. So the answer it gives is very precise without really errors of that hallucination type, because it can only really pull from the knowledge that we put into right. it. And we're constantly growing that knowledge too. And then the GPT, they sort of, they train it with a certain model, like the original one stopped around like 2021. So some of the latest information actually didn't have, whereas we're constantly feeding it. So it has the latest like publications and any, any changes, it'll kind of pick up on it. So basically we've created this system that's like a really super smart dermatologist can't really do all the other things a dermatologist can do, but it's it's almost like your colleague or like a really good third year resident yeah. as this extension of you. One common use case a lot of the dermatologists have been using it for are actually kind of prior auths, like denial letters. Mm -hmm. Or what I actually try to tell people to do, like forget the denial letter part, try to get your note correct the first time. Right. So like <laughs> just literally like do not get a fail because then you've gone down this whole rabbit hole of and, oh it's, and it's a lot of the times kind of fixable because another thing we've done with our group is we've formed this kind of outside prior auth team. But what I do a lot is actually kind of audit that. So every month I'll get back a report. What were the denials? And we look back at those charts and what, some of it could have been fixed as in maybe the prior auth team could have gone back in the, in the medication and then the old medication themselves Mm -hmm. added it. But that there's definitely variables of staffing and training of the staff to be able to do just little things like that. So I always just tell our MDs, just put the stuff in there in your note. So you're basically getting rid of those types of variables. But that's another use case for Durham GPT is literally like, okay, so I'm writing this medicine. What things should I put? in the note and I'll say, you know, I can't give you medical guidance. You do it, you know, cause it's still, it kind of always gives right. that verb, but you should probably <laughs> include your BSA and like 
failed this in the last 180 days or, you know, like all these types of things, or if there's any like step therapy, things like that as well. Plus also just a ton of other use cases, like a lot of um, med students or residents are using it to help them write research articles. That's been another whole field of like the ethics Um, around how much of it can it be? (laughs) Because we can, I think most journals have come out and put a statement now that you can use it. You can use chat GPT, germ GPT, these sources. You have to state if you use it a lot, basically, if you're using it to fix your grammar, that's okay. But if you're using it to really come up with any real thought, you have right. to kind of mention that in there. And then also, like, the use cases actually have been pretty, there's no limit to them. People are using it for all sorts of different ways in their practices. Some of our MAs were even using it to help answer patient questions, but always with physician review, of course, just to make sure it's correct. But sometimes patient questions are pretty generic, like, which one was I supposed to put on first? You know, the retin-A or the azelaic acid or what was the azelaic acid supposed to do? It's just things like that. Mm-hmm. And like germs do give you a really good response. Sometimes better than what I would say because my answers back and on the charts are like, yeah, use this. Yeah, it'll just clear your acne. You know, it's like one line. And then the chat GPT or germ GPT gives you like a two paragraph, nice explanation of what this cream is and how to use it. So yeah, so yeah, lots of different use cases for it. But yeah, long story short, it's like your AI dermatologist at the tip of your hand. So anyone can use it. It's definitely a lot of dermatologists are on it now, but I have found our staff really kind of utilize it too, just to make things better, kind of tee it up. Yeah, just to kind of tee things up for review. If it's denial letters, you don't don't even necessarily need to review because you know what you were going to write in there. It just makes it faster because like how many of those are we doing a day? So just really speeds things up. That definitely, you know, that was my first thought when... When I saw this, I was like, oh, this would be amazing for appeal letters. And, you know, especially as a bio coordinator, yes, I'm collaborating with all my providers to find out, you know, why it should be covered over this. But it will be really helpful to say, okay, what's the difference between an IL-17 and an IL-23? And, you know, when I'm trying to write a good appeal letter to the insurance to say, this is why the patient needs this instead of that, that would be really helpful just to have some additional information or even, you know, when we're facing those barriers like methotrexate, patient hasn't tried and failed methotrexate. And it's like, okay, but it's not indicated for atopic dermatitis. So, you know, right, right, right. rationale for that? And how can I get, make sure I have my and, words. And right. you actually talk like the best, I think that's the most important point, I think from like our staff, like we have certain staff who are just rock stars. Like they just are there to make your life better and easier and like the physicians really like recognize that and just like oh my god please don't ever leave you know so I think that our staff who does that are people that exactly like you say they just go that extra mile and it's good to have the tools to be able to do it but it's like you know I could could go to the physician and ask them this or why don't I just look it up tee it up for them and just like does this sound okay to you like that is just that is a lifesaver because if you're looking at like 50 messages if you're able as a physician just to do this, like that looks amazing. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Six, 10 seconds. You just, right. it just makes your life better, which then translates to just, just everyone being happier, mm-hmm. more productive for the office, better patient care. It really does. It, we are like an ecosystem. I think it really, whereas some other staff, and it's more rare, I think everyone's just doing such a great job, but some people that just don't necessarily think about it and just go, please advise, please give a recommendation for what to write oh, here. Then use methotrexate. What do you think? You know, so it's amazing. Like what your group is doing is just literally filling in those gaps. 
Right. I mean, it's true because, you know, when you think about it as a bio coordinator, what my role is, is to get the medication that you prescribe immediately. So, you know, when, when patients are fully informed and they know what is going on and they leave the office, you know, you want them to feel confident in your decision and their decision. And when they're leaving an office and they have something in their mind, like, okay, I'm going to get this prescription sent to my pharmacy. And then you call and say, oh, we can't get that medication. Now we got to switch. And automatically to them, it's like, okay, this is the second best choice. You know, I wanted that first choice that you said was going to be amazing. You know, it's true. It's like, well, I'm going to write you for the newest biologic. And then I call them back. I'm actually going to give you methotrexate. (laughs) It's crazy. And I love, I love how it can really help streamline the office process because, you know, that's, that is something I'm huge on is doing things right the first time, you know, getting the documentation done properly and having, you know, your scoring tools in there. I mean, it's crazy how often that gets missed. And that's number one question that insurance wants to know. And so when you think about the time that it takes for a patient to get the medication, it could be something as simple as not having that BSA and you're getting a denial because of that, or not having what the patient's been on in the past and tried and failed medications. And, you know, all of those little things pile up as, you know, you're really doing that back and forth argument with the insurance company when you really could have had everything together already from the start and save a lot of time for not only the person that's doing the prior authorization, but the office and for the patient. Yeah, hundred percent. With like just human training and error, both on mm-hmm. physician side and staff side. Like maybe you haven't written that medication for a year. I think people who are doing it all the time, what you're doing with just having this kind of prior auth and biological coordinator be out of the office. I think that's the right system. I think we should all kind of move towards that. That's that's the correct way to do it. Because then that staff just knows it. They might not even need these other external tools, except for maybe like writing a denial letter or things, just making things, the verbiage sound a little bit better as like an assist. Whereas on the other hand, in everyday clinic, people just forget. They were like, what was that again? Oh, should I try a calcineurin inhibitor? Should I not? You know, like all these little things you just forget because you're not doing it every single day. So how do you feel like that improves the efficiencies in the office than having that outsourced? Everything. So we basically, in our group, we used to have our medical assistants kind of be our prior auth people. Every once in a while, we would maybe have one biological coordinator in our group, but maybe if they left, then it kind of fell back on the medical assistant or if they were off, things like that. So mm-hmm. it was if 16 docs and then their medical assistant, sometimes we have one medical assistant, sometimes two, they would be the ones taking in the faxes, calling and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I took on his chair a couple of years ago, that was one of the main things I really wanted to streamline. So immediately we changed to e-fax, like these faxes have to go. Like literally we had one person right. checking the fax every day, like the piles of paper. Yeah. We switched to e-fax. So there's another group that just organizes our faxes. So that was removed from the office. It seems simple enough, but it's like, no, that is not what the medical assistant should be doing. The medical assistant should be helping you see more patients. Like that's really, if you're in clinic, you need to be doing clinical work, I think, you know, and yeah. if you're not, get out of there earlier. I mean, go get drinks, right? Right. <laughs> Starting out faxes. So that was removed. Then the other piece was to remove 
prior auth completely and take it outside the group. That was a piece that we had to actually financially make a case for. We're in a multi-specialty unit, so we do have kind of layers of ad- administration, uh, a little bit different than like a private practice where you can make decisions a little more quickly. So we really make a case for why it's financially better to take this out of the office. And we really made a clear case for it. And it's really easy to do if anybody kind of runs over their finances of how much are you paying a medical assistant? How much time is it taking them versus mm-hmm. just taking it out you know, outside? And like, how many staff do you need to do this really for 16 docs versus every MA taking time to right. do this? And the finances just make sense. It totally mm-hmm. makes sense. I mean, I think our argument is make our lives easier, make our medical assistance lives easier, get things for patients faster too. Because basically if there's somebody working on it every day, rather than when your medical assistant can get to it in between patients, you're going to have better care for patients. Right. But in large groups, making doctors' lives and staff lives easier, getting patients' medications sooner is not necessarily enough of a reason. It should be, but isn't. So then you really have to kind of come up with a business plan and explain why it's better to have this be outside. And I think the finances will always make sense. Right. I know. I was going to say, you know, who has time to sit on the phone for an hour? I mean, if I'm on the phone with an insurance company, then I'm on, you know, and I'm on hold. So I have it on speakerphone and then I can sit here and probably do at least 10 more prior authorizations online in that hold time. You know, yeah. it's crazy, but it's, you know, that's where it's it's so important to have somebody that can specifically focus on that. And what do you think the time to fill now is for your patients? Good, actually. So our, our group is doing pretty good. We can get medication pretty quickly. Another thing that I will do, but which not all the docs have time for, but if I feel like a patient really needs something quickly, I will actually go in myself and do an electronic prior auth. We have an Epic system and it's a hit and miss with the electronic prior auth. And I've tried to talk a lot with our Epic group about streamlining that. But I think out of all the tasks they have you know, on their plate, that streamlining electronic prior auth is like much lower down. So, so every once in a while, we get a little bit of resource towards it, but not a whole lot. Not all doctors will adopt that. But I think that's the fastest model is if you just go and I basically initiate a prior auth right then and there, I answer the questions if that list comes up with the correct questions. I attach my note to it. I will have put in everything needed in the node. And if I don't remember, go to like a Durham GPT, check it, make sure you have everything in there that you need, send it off. We've had biologics approved like within hours. Right. And some of the specialty Medicaid pharmacies are really good now too. And they ship right away. Like I one time had a patient that I saw at like an 11 a.m. or something. And the next morning they were shipped their medication. Like that's rare. Yeah. That's rare. But I think everybody there just did everything. But it, that just <laughs> shows that it can happen. And if there's efficiencies in place, then you shouldn't have an issue of waiting months to yeah. get patient a medication. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely the minority of cases, but it's a definite proof of concept. This process does not even have to be a thing. It doesn't even like people will just one day forget about it as being a pain point. Yeah. And then physicians sometimes uh, approach this as let's get rid of prior odds. And I think we won't be able to get rid of prior odds because insurance companies just have to have a mechanism for cost saving as well. These medications cost a lot of money. So that I totally understand. The one thing I have seen, I think like it was like one time, so I don't know if this is a trend, but I think if you're really good at prior odds and most docs are getting prior odds approved quickly and at higher rate, like above 94, 96%, insurance companies 
might get rid of that prior auth because they're paying more for admin on the other side to review the prior auths. Um, yeah. So potentially maybe the, one of the ways to ease up on prior auths is just be really good at them. They're really efficient at them, but in, yeah. they're not going to eliminate it. I think it's just a system right. that kind of has to happen as well. There needs to be a little bit of like, a, and, and that's understandable on the other side. Mm-hmm. Too, that they kind of have to have their mechanisms. Yeah. So when I think about Durham GPT, number one, uh, you know, is that something that I can just sign up for? Is there a cost for it or? No. So we are still in the beta version. So we are keeping it free actually for dermatologists and dermatology staff because it's been so helpful for everyone. And our goal overall is to keep everything open and open access so that a lot of the information is open access as well. That's another problem is if you kind of go on maybe PubMed and look up an article to try to read, sometimes you might not have access to it. So one of our main goals is just make information accessible to everyone because it's basically if it's for patient care, it should be accessible within seconds to minutes. So yeah, you can just sign up. It's it's just www.dermgpt.com. Go ahead and sign up. And Yes. So let's talk about the future of AI in this. I mean, right now, this is just a website that you go to, but do you think that it could like maybe integrate into the EMR system? What are your thoughts? Yeah, actually, yeah, that's that's definitely something we've looked at as well. Um, it's definitely kind of a higher move to try to integrate. And then we would definitely have to kind of do a lot more charging and things like that. So we really love the way that it, right now it's just easily accessible. We have talked to a couple of companies. They're using it and kind of we're customizing it a little bit for them. Uh, they're using it in kind of different ways. We also on the back end for the enterprise version have like bots that we can use. So they're pretty cool. So we can deploy these bots that like we ran one for a different campaign where it asked questions. So it's basically a little bot that comes up and asks you questions. So basically engages patients more online. But then on the back end, the intelligence piece is the Derm GPT. So we can answer your questions from, from that learned language model. Right. Basically, lots of cool things actually that we're kind of doing with it. And it's really fun. This is kind of the, the things that I love to do because it's basically coming up with a solution, but from the position of the problem first, which I think hopefully most technology or hopefully all technology that comes out for doctors and staff or mm-hmm. look having us on the teams first or physician initiated. Otherwise, the tech just adds more and more complexity without really helping. You've probably heard that from physicians too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, especially, you know, you get some offices that are still on paper charts, but now it's hard yeah. because you've got to submit a prior authorization online yeah. and there's some that you can't even fax stuff. You know, they don't even accept faxes anymore. Because it's, it's I, I gave a talk to the UCSF residency and it was we talked about this. I kind of went through the evolution of healthcare technology as it kind of went along with just regular technology for the world. So healthcare 1.0, and now we're at healthcare 5.0 with something like Derm GPT that's AI mediated. But healthcare 1.0 is literally like paper charts. It's mm-hmm. basically it spans from like 1970 to like 1990s, and then. EMR started coming in, healthcare 3.0 started being a little bit more, a little bit of telehealth coming in, mm-hmm. EMR coming in, social media coming in, which was really switched up how healthcare is seen and where people are getting their information. And then now we're into like internet of things, digitization, AI, which is healthcare 4.0 and healthcare 5.0. But there are still offices that are at healthcare 1.0. Like you mentioned, they have paper charts. And if you look, it's not like those are like 
antiquated offices. A lot of them are actually, the people running them are super cool, super on top of it, very profitable. They're doing it because they're like, this is the most efficient way to right. do it. So if those guys all have an iPhone, they're not like on their flip phone. Like they're not, they're not against <laughs> like that 80s, like giant phone or anything. <laughs> So they're not people that are innately against technology. They're just against crappy technology, basically. Right. Like you said, we can't get that biologic approved today and sent to you tomorrow if you're on paper cards and right. you got like taking the prescription over to the specialty pharmacy. Like that won't work. Right. <laughs> so I think the adoption of technology is really, really important and a place where it's kind of failed a little bit in healthcare. It was, this was actually incredible with Derm GPT. The adoption was immediate. We had thousands of derms join. We did a couple of groups of like, hey, how was it? Was it hard to join, hard to figure out? And they're like, no, it was, you know. So I think developing tools from the place of, okay, so how does how is our staff thinking about things? How would they formulate their questions? When we all sit around and talk, like we get each other. We're like, yes, that happens all the time. Right. So then, you know, then you start thinking about, okay, if, AI is just getting so smart because we're feeding it all of this information. Where is the point where, you know, you can start automating it for some things like maybe sending a text to a patient to remind them about their medication or things like that. But where do you find that balance of it not taking over too much to where it's eliminating the need for certain things or, or roles in the office, I guess? That's, that's a really good point. And I always tell our like, staff and biologic coordinators, these kinds of roles are absolutely needed, but mm-hmm. the, and they won't be replaced by AI, but the people in these positions who are using AI will replace the ones who aren't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'll just make them faster, more efficient. AI is here. It's, I don't think it's anything that we can sort of ignore anymore. So I think companies that adopt it and groups that adopt it earlier and utilize it to their advantage we will have an advantage for sure. A lot of the automation that I think AI can do is actually not necessarily going to replace, but just make healthcare better. Like there are check-ins that we should be doing with patients that we're not doing. Like we know from the shared medical decision-making side that there is a lot kind of left there that you're not getting to talk about in a physician patient interaction just because it's not a whole lot of time. There are screens we're not doing. Like for psoriasis, there's a lot of like psoriasis, arthritis, uh, sorry, like arthritis screens are not happening as one example. So mm-hmm. a lot of that kind of automation is just things that are not happening now that will be added or screening for cardiovascular risk. Um, so I think healthcare well should be made better because we're able to automate these things that we just couldn't, maybe you, there's no route of getting insurance reimbursement for. So offices are not putting effort into doing these things. But if it doesn't require staff, then they're more likely to do it. And if the information is kind of just kind of figuring itself out rather than like a human being having to sit there. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, and I see there's a lot of, you know, portals and things like that. And I see a lot of larger companies wanting to implement, you know, a, a certain platform or sometimes even especially pharmacy, but they think that that is going to replace the bio coordinator role. And, you know, and I think sometimes if you're not on the ground and you're not actually doing the work, like, you know, in your position, you see the barriers and you see the issues that come into place when you're trying to get that access, but you also need somebody to navigate all of that as well. So even when you're implementing a lot of those things, I think a lot of times they think, they think, oh, well, 
this platform is going to do everything for us and we can eliminate that that role. And I've seen that happen a lot where they're just assuming, oh, they're going to do everything for us and it's going to make it so much easier. But it really ends up burdening the office because they still have to do extra work. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's partly also because the technology so far has not been formed really well. Like if they actually do want, and I don't think this will ever really happen, we really need biologic coordinators. I think that role is actually growing more and more because we have more medications coming out, more complexity, or healthcare more and more complicated. So we just need a lot more smart people like you figuring it out and getting people the things that they need. But if a company ever really was serious, what they need to do is literally take 20 biologic coordinators and have them develop the product, right. which is not how companies go about things. Mm-hmm. So luckily for you know certain positions, they will never reach that endpoint where the product can actually do what you do because yeah. they're just... Well, I say that about the hubs. I'm like, okay, they have all these ad boards and things to talk about access with bio coordinators and stuff. But what about the hubs? Like they need to have like meetings and ad boards with other coordinators so that they know how to run them properly. So hopefully that changes. The more that they actually look into it, they'll realize how important these roles are. And even if they can add the, you know, add the advisory boards, they'll kind of realize out of a complexity that, you really can't replace it. Like I reviewed a paper recently. It was basically AI platforms for radiology. So basically mm-hmm. replace a radiologist. <laughs> and wow. it's, it, it really kind of, they looked at um, four different radiology AI platforms. And then they had really advanced attending radiologists also read the the x-rays and the advanced, the radiologists were just superior. They were so good. <laughs> like they were so much better than what the AI could do. And what they found that, the AI wasn't actually missing anything, but it had a bunch of false positives. Mm. So there's no way you can basically replace that. So maybe like an AI could replace a newly hired office member who's like really gung-ho and trying to be a biologic coordinator. Maybe it could replace that person, but it can't replace the biologic coordinator that's been doing this for like 10 or 15 years. There's just no... Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Well, I could sit here and talk all day about efficiencies in the office. (laughs) Because that is like my jam. I love that. And so I'm really excited to to start trying out Derm GPT and, you know, seeing how we can implement that in our workflow and, and utilizing that because, you know, that's the goal. We're all here to to help our patients, to make a difference in our patients' lives. And I think the more information that we have at our fingertips and the more we're able to share with others and to teach our team members and our staff and, you know, everyone that has, you know, that plays such an important role in getting that patient access to the medications, I think it's, it's so valuable. So I really, I love that. And I'm so, I'm honored to have you on my podcast. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for spending a few minutes with me and listening to That's Derm Good. The podcast is available on your favorite app, including where you're listening right now. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a new episode. Bye.